I also think what goes around comes around that mm -hmm. most of the uh, legal community is relatively small in your practice, in your area. At least for me, if somebody is a complete jerk about something that just seems to me that they should be able to do, I'm going to remember that the next time they you know, want an extension on discovery. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. Uh, today, I have on a friend of mine, Laura Gregory, uh, who I co-authored, networked with. Uh, she is a coverage attorney in uh, Massachusetts. And, you know, I, I met her, um, you know, last year, right before the pandemic hit. And, um, you know, we've been keeping in touch through the year through our various networking and on, on LinkedIn. And I asked her to come on so, you know, I could grill her with some questions. So with that said, I will bring her in. Hey, Laura, thanks for joining me this morning. How are you? I'm good. Well, I, I'm so happy you're coming on. This is your second time on the Defense Everest, but the first time with me. Um, yeah. And I, I gave you a little heads up. I'm trying a little different 10 question format. Um, but I'll say it's like a 10 question format with a little asterisks because Sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's ten, eight, you know, you know how things go. <laughs> I won't keep count. <laughs> um, but I, I will, you know, I, I've known you for, I guess, a year now. Uh, we met on, on LinkedIn through our, um, our women's marketing, like LinkedIn group. And we wrote a book together, which is pretty awesome. It is. Um, <laughs> but I've never, like, and I, you and I have been on a few happy hours together in some panels, but I've never really like sat down and, you know, grilled you with questions. So I'm kind of looking forward <laughs> to it. <laughs> you could, you, I know that's a nervous laughter. I, I, I have a face of fierceness, <laughs> but I believe that, so you, you currently live in the math in like outside of Boston, but you grew up in the Midwest, right? Yeah. I grew up in Lawrence, Kansas, where the university of Kansas is. So I'm, I'm oh, a law ahead. school kid, a law school professor's kid. Uh, <laughs> and, and my mother was, is uh, a non-practicing lawyer as well. So <laughs> the, the legal stuff runs deep in the family. Yeah, and that actually was one of, one of my, my questions too. So I thought I remembered that as well, that you, you had two lawyer parents um, and did that, did that help push you towards, you know, your decision to attend law school? Um, maybe, but in a weird way, they didn't want me to become a lawyer, um, especially my mother thought that it wasn't very conducive to ha like having a decent family life. Um, and, uh, which, you know, I think there's some accuracy to that, particularly, uh, the timing that my mother was graduating from law school, which was, um, mid sixties. Um, so, so they were pushing me not to go to law school. And I decided when I was very young, like elementary school age that I didn't want to go to law school because all it did was teach you how to argue and I could figure that out on my own. Um, so then when I was in college and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life, um, I thought maybe making life decisions based on that seven or eight year old decision wasn't the best option. So um, since my dad's a law professor, I had easy access to go to some law school classes. So I went and sat in on a couple of law school classes in my mind, I was like going to check the box that law school was off the table and actually really enjoyed it. I found it very interesting and um, as a result, ended up going to law school and spent my first year sort of understanding the punchlines to jokes I'd heard my whole life. <laughs> um, so 
Um, so that's how I ended up there. And uh, um, not, not maybe the normal story from two parent lawyers, but. Well, but, and was your mom, your mom, was she ever a practicing attorney? She's not, not practicing now, but was she? She practiced for a couple of years. Um, so my parents got married when um, my father was in his third year of law school. Um, actually, maybe it was my mother's third year. And then they had, and so they had another year for my father to go. So she practiced for that year. And then they moved to Washington, D.C. because my father had a clerkship with the D.C. Circuit Court. Um, and uh, they in, so then they were going to stay in D.C. My mother took the D.C. bar um, and they also went to the University of Iowa where I went. So my mother had also taken the Iowa bar. Then I was born and um, my father got a professorship at um, Georgetown. And the plan was to stay in the DC area. Then this is late sixties and the um, riots after Kent State hit and everything was just not pleasant. And they felt like it wasn't a good place to be raising small children. So when I was two and my brother was like five weeks old, mm. um, they moved to Lawrence, Kansas where the University of Kansas is where my father got a job as a professor and Within the first year, the union had been burned to the ground and the university was um, shut down and the town was under martial law because of all oh, of the wow. same issues. So they didn't exactly end up in a safer place, but um, now, what, 50 years later, they're still there. <laughs> my father's oh. now retired, <laughs> um, but uh, my mother, was basically like she had taken the Iowa bar, she'd taken the DC bar and they hadn't stayed anywhere very long. And so, and she had two little kids. And so she decided not to take the Kansas bar because the theory was they weren't gonna be there very long. And then by the time they were there for a while, she was not interested in trying to take a bar exam again. <laughs> um, so she taught evidence at the uh, University of Kansas for a while and um, has done a number of like legal based things, but hasn't practiced law um, since. So, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. I mean, I know there's plenty of people out there who do it, but I can't imagine trying to study for a bar with two young kids. It just would be, I don't know, terrible. Yeah, <laughs> And we had no family in the area, so it wasn't necessarily, you know, that you'd have a lot of support for doing that either. So, yeah. So how, how did you make your way to the, to the Northeast? Uh, that was my husband's fault. So. <laughs> Always their fault. That's, it's my husband's fault why I live in New Jersey. <laughs> um, so I met my husband at Grinnell College in Iowa, and um, we got married during my third year of law school. And that was his first year as a grad student at MIT. And so I ended up, we got married Christmas time. And I ended up doing my last semester of law school in Boston. Um, and the original plan was that we probably move back to the Midwest. Um, he was on the 10 year PhD plan. So by the time he finally got the PhD, I uh, had been practicing in Massachusetts for a while. I'd only taken the Massachusetts bar. And so, um, I don't know if it was ever really a decision to stay, but, <laughs> um, and now I've lived in the Boston area longer than I've lived anywhere else. And I still don't talk like a Bostonian, but I definitely drive like one now. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Connecticut, so I, I can under, I, I, uh, I know that um, driving uh, reference, I think, what do we call it? We call the, the mass holes. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a thing, but New York's probably worse, so. I think uh, it's sort of a city thing. My husband's from Chicago, and each time I go back to Chicago, I'm like, oh, they're just as bad here. And, <laughs> and so, you know, maybe there's some idiosyncrasies, but the overall sort of aggressive city driving is, I think, what the issue, the primary issue is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how was, I mean, growing up in, you know, in Kansas and in, in the Midwest and then transitioning to the Northeast, I imagine, I mean, that had to be just a big change. Um, I would say some of the language stuff was the most uh, difficult, and I would finally admit to people when I wouldn't understand something, <laughs> uh, which they all thought was hilarious. Um, or I got I got several things about how I I pronounce things so correctly. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is just how I pronounce them. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember uh, in. Um, I'm not even totally clear where, but in areas of New England, you may know this better than I do. uh, um, Soda is called tonic. Um, And to me, tonic is like, has quinine water. It goes with gin. It's, you know, that's the tonic. Well, so I had figured out by context that tonic was more than what I considered it to be tonic and that it included some amounts of soda, but I wasn't sure, is it all soda? Is it like, just uh, because I kept hearing it referenced with um, things like 7-Up or things that were, you know, clear, um, not cola. So finally, I asked the uh, partner that I was working with who thought it was the most hilarious question ever. (laughs) And short answer, tonic is all soda. Um, So then I remember when he was going to Chicago for something, I was like, okay, if you want a Coke, you can order a Coke. If you want a soda, you can ask for a soda. They'll probably know that you mean like soda pop. Uh, I was like, but if you ask for a tonic, you will get quinine water. <laughs> um, so, uh, but that's, um, that's funny because I actually never, I never heard that. That that must be that, that's a strictly Massachusetts thing. We, well, it may also be Rhode Island. Rhode Island uh, has some weird like weird. things. Yeah. They have have definite odd phrases and a lot of it too is sort of who you're around like where did they grow up where what you know where did their parents grow up those sorts of languages tend to to cross over and when you're from outside the area you don't realize that it's just this certain part of you know the southeast part of the state that talks this way it seems like everyone does (laughs) yeah I mean that's like growing up the we called sprinkles they're called shots and when I came to college they call them jimmies yes um which is definitely not pc and I call them sprinkles Uh so um for those for our our listeners who don't know uh you're a practicing coverage attorney and you post on on LinkedIn about every day about you know different coverage decisions well business Um, days I I keep the weekends to myself (laughs) yes I do as well (laughs) there's some you got to cut it off at some point exactly Um, you need to put the phone down (laughs) but I have a few questions about that but first you know how did you fall into doing coverage work? Was it that you were just, 
you know, I, I don't know. It was, it, I mean, I know I'm in litigation because that was just the job, first job I had, and that's where I stayed. <laughs> but I don't know if it's something that you found that you really had an affinity for um, and that you were good at. So you just, it's something you want to do or you just fell into it. I, I would say a little of both. When I was in law school, the um, I worked for um, my first year contract professor who happens to be, well, he's now deceased, but happened to be a um, um, nationally known uh, expert on um, a particular type of auto insurance coverage. Um, and I, <laughs> so my first semester of law school, being a professor's kid, you sort of relate to professors slightly differently maybe than your average student. So our first assignment in his class, we, we had to write a memo to the senior partner um, identifying the issues in some construction dispute. This is contracts 101, right? So we all do the memo and apparently all of us basically miss all of the stuff we were supposed to have in there. So, so he, he, and this is a small class. So there are like 20, 20, 20, 25 of us in there. And so he hands them back out, basically tells us that we all did terrible and then starts to move on to the next subject. And I, I raised my hand and I was basically like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. So we all, you know, didn't do what we were supposed to do. What were we supposed to do? Right. Um, and so then he walked us through that. And I remember afterwards, like several of the other students in the class were like, you know, thank you for doing that. How, you know, weren't you scared to ask that? And I'm just like, well, you know, somehow to me, a law professor wasn't quite so scary, maybe. Um, and I think after that, and then I used some word in a paper that he didn't know and had to look up and I had used absolutely correctly. <laughs> um, so I'm meeting with him. He's like, I looked up this word. And he's like, you use it correctly, but I'd never heard of it. And he's like, and then I figured out that your father is, you know, Keith Meyer and your mother, Deanna Meyer went here and he's like, and now I understand. So I think that sort of started it that summer. I um, started working for him and I uh, edited the next edition of his book, everything from like looking up citations to changing things around. And because I was willing to basically say, okay, I can't follow this sentence because there are six dependent clauses. We need to break it up. Whereas some of his other um, uh, students that were working for him would be like, well, there was a typo on page seven and this should be 36 instead of 37 in this site. And you know, I was like, no, I can't follow this. <laughs> um, so I think that's how it started was doing that, editing that book. Um, then the summer after my second year, I was trying to get a summer job in Boston, which when you go to the University of Iowa, it's not like a lot of Boston firms are coming out there. So I was pretty much on my own, sent out a horde of, you know, cold paper letters and envelopes at that point <laughs> um, and ended up uh, sort of just by chance working for an attorney who did both uh, insurance defense and insurance coverage. He did about half of each. Um, and so then that summer, and then I ended up working uh, for that firm for four years after law school. Um, I did both defense and coverage, but I liked the coverage better. And um, I had the background doing the coverage stuff from law school and also figured out that most people don't want to touch coverage with the 10 foot pole. So it was like, okay, I like this better. People don't like to do this. It's a good fit. <laughs> so long answer to your question. <laughs> no, it's a great answer because I, I think the the thing with coverage is that that I think it's intimidating to to people who don't do it because 
you know, while, you know, as lawyers, we are pretty detail oriented, but I think that it takes it to another level and the amount of detail that you have to focus on and it's multifaceted. Like it's just, I don't know, anytime I've done a little bit of coverage work, I, I, I feel intimidated by it. Cause I'm like, there's a lot there. There's a lot going on and you have to look at so many different pieces and then pull it all together. It's got a steep learning curve um, yeah. in, in that you, I mean, the policies to a great extent are very much the same. Um, although there are always, you know, key differences, particularly state to state. Um, but knowing like just having sort of the exposure to both the different issues and the different policies is really a hard thing to replicate. So I think the the best way to learn this stuff is to work closely with somebody who's done it for a long time. And then you start to pick up all of those different issues because you know now I've been doing this more than 25 years and the, the issues jump out at me. Um, but when I'm, when I'm working with younger associates, I will talk about, you know, okay, um, this is something you need to keep in mind. Like when we first start looking at something, um, oh, for example, did the insurance company send the right policy? I don't know how many times you get the like time period of the, of the alleged, whatever the problem is, is say in 2018 and they send the current policy. It's like, well, the current policy is not helpful because the accidented issue is back in 2018, we need the 2018 policy, which may be the same, but it may not. Right. Um, so, and there are a bunch of different issues with that. And that really basic stuff that shouldn't happen, but does happen. Um, and, and just all of those issues that you kind of have to just tick off on the list to make sure they're not an issue. Um, I also have a process that I always try and teach people um, how to go through a policy, how to, to read the policy. I also, and it's not as much an issue now, but used to get cases with a nice cover letter from the, from the adjuster explaining whatever the, you know, the basics of the case, what they thought the issue was. I would always take that off so that I didn't think there was one particular issue. It didn't have it in my head that, that there was an issue before I looked at the case. Um, now you get that via email. I find that I get less of those. Either I get a phone call or I get, you know, we've got an issue with ABC, claim files attached, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's, I think it's important so that you don't miss things because I've had several cases where the, the case came in with a question about X and my answer on X is, well, no, you can't do X. But look over here at why that's a huge issue that we can, you know, figure out and, and do something with that they hadn't focused on at all. Uh, so it's always important to look at everything and make sure that there aren't other issues or other facts that take away from what your sort of initial analysis might have been. Yeah, and, and that is such a good point, though, even like I notice that even when I'm looking at a, a new new file or, or an issue, like I don't really want anyone to tell me what the, the issues are, because you, you want to see it out of blank slate and, you know, because then you're just going to focus on that one thing, you know, just right. like you're you said, looking for it <laughs> and, and not look at it as a whole. Um, so, but I imagine, I mean, you must need large chunks of time that you have uninterrupted concentration, because I imagine it's once you, if you roll, if you're in it and then something distracts you, it, it, then it takes you time to get back in. It, it depends on how complicated the issue is, but yes, yeah, certainly the complicated ones um, or ones that are more unusual 
Um, I also find during, during COVID, I've tried as much as possible to modify to looking at things on screens instead of on paper. The one thing that I cannot do is an insurance policy. I have to print out the policy. I have to be able to like highlight it and put stickies on it and flip from one thing to the next and things like that. Um, but uh, the, the time period, I think, you know, having this sort of quiet time, the key is just to shut off email. Um, particularly during COVID, I have found that people don't call as much. Um, they'll send an email or set up a call uh, so that I don't have that interruption. Um, and my kids aren't young, um, so I don't, I can close the door to the <laughs> guest room now known as my office. Um, and, uh, and I can get the quiet time that way, but email is, is a big distraction. Um, and you try to be responsive, but also it's it's hard when you know you're hearing that that ding every yeah, few minutes. And I, of course, as soon as I hear the ding, I have to go find out what it is. <laughs> so I, I tend to just turn it off and then check back. You know, after I've spent an hour or so going over something, I'll check back and see what what has popped up in the meantime. <laughs> I, I do that too. I'll just like completely shut out of email when I need to focus because it's. I, I, it's something with how we've um, been ingrained now with the, that ding is like, even if you ignore it, then that's, it's like still like right over here and you're still thinking about it. like, I, you know, you got something, so you want to check it. So I do, I close it out too, because it, it's very distracting, you know, to, and if you're trying to think and then to just even that little bit of time that you go off to do something else, it takes you that much time, much time to get back in. And I don't know, it's, I also try and take notes or, you know, dictate as I go along, um, just so that I, I can get back to where I was, even if the, the notes or the memo itself isn't horribly useful, I can go back and it's like, okay, this is what I had already looked at. These are what I flagged as the big issues. Now I can start where I left off instead of trying to remember where I was, yeah. um, which works better in some cases than others. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then the other big distractor is, is, is you and I both share this too, is the, the LinkedIn distraction that yeah, and I know I, I've logged out. <laughs> I, I've, I log out during the day now. i like when I'm eating lunch, it's what I do because of course I'm eating lunch at my computer. <laughs> um, so I'll look at it at lunch and at the end of the day, but um, I try to be off of LinkedIn by like nine, 10 in the morning and then then ignore it until I'm taking an intentional break. Um, but yeah, I log out of that too, or I have, or I turn all my notifications off because if I hear the the noises, then I have yeah. to go back. <laughs> so, and but and for our, our our listeners who don't know, like each each day you or each weekday that you post a like an insurance coverage update. Now I am always very impressed at. <laughs> your content one, because I know this about you that you do it that morning. Like you, you, you write it on the fly that more, I wouldn't say on the fly, but you, you pull it together that morning and it, it's very thoughtful and interesting. And I'm just amazed that you're able to do it that quickly. Like it, before I knew that I was like, Oh, Laura must have these planned out like ahead of time. Like she has this master document. She's got it all planned out. So take me through your process or explain your process a little bit, how, how you find this content and then you're able to just pull it together so well-written and thoughtful that quickly. <laughs> well, thank you, you're so nice. <laughs> um, well, uh, I do definitely, it, it is the rare occasion when I have written it before. <laughs> um, 
And I generally do it in the morning. Usually I'm at my computer by about seven and I try and have the post up. Usually I'm aiming between eight and nine Eastern time. Um, and some posts take longer to write than others. So uh, today I think I was almost 10 before I got it up. So it was, no, almost nine, um, not that bad. But um, what I do is I have two things. One, I have a Google doc that I keep track of potential posts on. Um, and uh, just they're, they're anywhere from just an idea to like a link or two to an article or if it's, you know, uh, legislation or something, it could be a link to the information about the legislation, whatever. So I have that document. And then um, I also as things, I subscribe to way too many like email newsletters and that sort of thing. So as I look at those things um, and something of interest comes up, I usually open a, uh, a tab on my computer that has whatever the article or um, case or whatever it is. And so I constantly have a million tabs open. <laughs> so um, I hope your browser never just like shuts down on you. <laughs> um, so, so in the morning, like, like this morning, I wasn't sure what I was going to post on. So I have a couple of like insurance based websites that I'll uh, go to and um, see if there's anything interesting or I'll look at all of my, my tabs and see if there's anything interesting there. Um, and usually, usually it sort of just starts from an idea. Um, a, a lot of times it's a new case um, that comes down. And one thing about insurance is because the policies are the same um, to a great extent, you can have policy language well, like for example, all the business interruption cases, policy language on those has been very similar, even though we've had cases all across the country. Um, so even though insurance law is very state oriented, you can have the same policy language looked at by a court in California, New York, whatever. Sorry if you're hearing my dog. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so that, in that respect, I can take a case from whatever state and talk about it and it can be relevant to an audience anywhere. Um, even if it's not binding, it, it will give you know information and insurance like anything else, insurance law has trends. And so if you see four or five states that are doing X, even if your state doesn't usually follow those states, it's sort of something to keep in mind that that mm -hmm. may be coming. Um, so in that respect, I'm, even though um, my practice is primarily in New England, um, I'm involved with a couple of clients in cases across the country. And even for cases just in Massachusetts State Court, it's a good idea to have, an, have some knowledge of what's happening in other states because yeah. it could come up in your case. And it could be what the you know, SJC in Massachusetts does next. Um, so, so I always find those interesting and, um, and you know, you can get a ton of stuff online now. So that things that uh, more so I think that I realized pre-COVID. Um, the other thing is a lot of people, a lot of times it'll be an issue that I read about like on LinkedIn on somebody else's post or, yeah. and, and it doesn't even have to be the exact same issue. Sometimes it's like somebody is talking about a litigation issue or a liability issue. And I will post about sort of the insurance side of that. Um, one of the things I try and do in my posts in general is to make insurance understandable, interesting, if at all possible, <laughs> um, and also to make people understand that like it has sort of tentacles in so many things. 
And you know, you do insurance defense work, so you understand that. And coverage lawyers certainly get that. But a lot of people I think don't realize how involved insurance is in, in virtually every industry. Um, so. Yeah, I've had that conversation with a few people that just like with people who work for insurance companies or adjusters or, and they, they kind of ended up there because, or their, their sentiment is like insurance is everywhere. You know, it's just, and people don't, a lot of people don't realize how, like how far, you know, it touches everything. So there's never an end. <laughs> at least, at least in the civil realm and in, you know, yeah. most sort of business and things like that. It's a, it's a different ball of wax in the criminal side of things, which I am not very knowledgeable on other than we oftentimes see cases that are the civil case following up on the criminal case. Um, and those can have huge insurance issues because if you have a uh, intentional act that causes injury, mm -hmm. uh, usually that's not covered. Right. Can't, right. can't say always, but yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you can end up with those, you know, you have a murder case, but then there's a civil case afterwards. And um, depending, I mean, one other thing that we deal with all the time is what does a criminal plea do to insurance coverage? Short answer, in most states, it is not a slam dunk. If you have a jury verdict that says that they had the intent to cause the harm, then you're good. But if it's a if it's a plea, most states say no, that's not enough. You can use the really? testimony. Yeah, you can use the testimony in the plea colloquy. So whatever they admitted to in the actual plea colloquy with the judge, you can use that. But the actual plea itself is not definitive. Again, very state to state. That's yeah. true in Massachusetts, and I think all the states I've looked into it. But thankfully, it doesn't come up all that often, but it does come up. And, and that's, it's super interesting, though, too, just as you would think that the the plea on its own is enough. But I mean, and, and that's, I, that's why I'm like, so fascinated about your job, because it's, um, or, or more so like what you do, because you have to really, you have to dig deep on everything. You know, it's not the, it's not the first, you can't be satisfied with the first level, you have to get, you know, some of it further. depends though. Like if it's a duty to defend case, duty to defend is generally determined by the allegations and the complaint. So you are, and state by state, there are some things that can come into play outside the complaint um, in different ways, but primarily it's the complaint. So you look at the allegations in the complaint and you assume that everything in there is true. It's like a motion to dismiss standard. Mm -hmm. um, if everything in there is true and they prove their case, is there coverage for any portion of it? In virtually every state, if the answer to that question is yes, there's a duty to defend, even if it's 1% of the damages. Um, and one thing that people also don't understand is it doesn't matter how frivolous the claim may be. It doesn't matter if you don't think that the plaintiff is ever going to be able to prove any of that. That doesn't matter because under the insurance policy, you're entitled to a defense, even to frivolous claims. And so if it's a frivolous claim, hopefully the defense doesn't take long and you get out of the case, <laughs> but, but it doesn't change the defense. And so that's a very sort of compartmentalized analysis, mm -hmm. but um, it's, it's probably the only one that is very limited in what you look at. You look at the allegations of the complaint, you look at the policy, and in some states, a lot of states, if you can have facts outside the complaint that create coverage, then the courts will look to those. But if there are facts outside the complaint that would avoid coverage, usually you don't get to rely on those and they still have a duty to defend. 
Yeah, see, it, it just rolls off your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Year, years of practice. <laughs> You're like, I can do this blind. <laughs> but, you know, it obviously you weren't, I mean, this it was years of practice. It took so a long time of practice for you to have this huge base of knowledge. And during that time, you had to have come across some embarrassing moments in your career. <laughs> so when you sit here today, can you, is it one thing to stick out of it's like, you know, one of that just like, oh my God, I can't like one of your most embarrassing professional moments. Um well um I can think of one time and I was fairly it's been fairly recently. Um we filed a uh um, a motion for summary judgment and attached to, as part of it was an affidavit with a copy of the policy that was signed by um, an individual at the insurance company. So the apparently the endorsement at issue was not attached to the <laughs> policy that was attached to the affidavit. Um, and of course we thought it was. <laughs> um, so just sort of as a public service announcement, if you see this on the other side, call up the lawyer and say, I, I don't know if there's a bigger problem here, or maybe it's just a you know copying error, but you're relying on endorsement A and it's not actually attached. Well, lawyer didn't do that. Instead, he files his opposition to the motion for summary judgment, basically saying the endorsement's not attached, therefore it's not part of the policy and under the rest of the policy we win. Um, so, we did get it fixed up and it was, you know, uh, <laughs> a uh, very embarrassing and annoying problem. But I, I think, frankly, if I'd been on the other side, I would have called and said, look, I know you're relying on this endorsement. Do you realize that it's not attached? And if this is just, you know, a problem that you need to fix, let's figure out how to fix it. Yeah, um, there, so. there is there is a lot to be said in this industry, I think, about common courtesy like we're all human you know everyone makes mistakes and clearly th that wasn't a mistake of knowledge but it just was you know something inadvertent you know like you I've had it happen before that you know that you've you had someone scan something for you and then like some a random email from something else gets scanned at the bottom of oh, the <laughs> You and know. you hope to God that's not like the attorney-client privileged uh, email of the year. Yeah. <laughs> um. I mean, I've I've had a, I had one one time I was on the receiving end of an email that was not meant to go to me. It was supposed to be like some other firm, an internal email um, that they they were sent. Like it was like their evaluation of like every case in the office <laughs> and I knew as soon as I got, I, like, I just deleted it and I sent the person a separate email I was like by the way I was mistakenly on this I've deleted it and purged it <laughs> you know FYI just, <laughs> so you know <laughs> you owe me lunch no just <laughs> I think dinner <laughs> but I mean not good, you know, but yeah. the mistakes do happen. And, you know, I think as many lawyers are, as there are out there, it is a, you know, relatively close knit community. And, you know, 
it help it doesn't behoove you to you know help out your fellow community members when you when when appropriate <laughs> exactly um i mean frankly we shouldn't even have to say that but um i don't know it just i, I think there there've been a lot of uh, eroding of civility in the bar over the last uh probably 10 years um this idea that being a strong advocate somehow means you need to be a complete jerk in all situations so right. um and i mean there are some situations where it's not a clear call between being an advocate and being you know a nice guy but at least address those sort of as you need to to make sure that you're meeting your ethical obligations to your client and 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 then be above board about it right i just i don't know um i agree I also think what goes around comes around that mm -hmm. most of the uh, legal community is relatively small in your practice, in your area. And so that if you, at least for me, if somebody is a complete jerk about something that just seems to me that they should be able to do, I'm going to remember that the next time they, you know, want an extension on discovery or um, whatever, I'm going to be like, well, you know, if I think I can get away with saying no and not look bad to the judge, I will. <laughs> um, because yeah. if they aren't going to give me the courtesy, frankly, I'm unlikely to give it back. Um, right. But yeah, I agree. Um, so switching gears a little bit. Um, so you are you serve as a councilwoman in in your in your district, right? So I'm a select woman um, select or woman. <laughs> a member of the select board. Uh, we use all those different things. So um, it's this weird, it's, I guess it's similar to uh, a, a council form of government. Frankly, I grew up in the Midwest. We had, you know, a, a city council, a, a city commission actually it was called and a mayor. Um, this whole method of government was completely foreign to me. Um, the traditional label of it is Board of Select Men, um, goes back to the 1600s in, in most of uh, New England states. And um, we changed the name of our board about three years ago to the Select Board to keep it gender neutral, particularly since it was the only board literally in town of any type that had some sort of gender in the name. Um, you know, the school committee doesn't. <laughs> um, so, um, and I've been on uh, the board for, let's see, I got reelected last year. And so I'm about to finish my, I've just finished my fourth year, starting my fifth year. Um, so what made you, like, were you, like, was it a progression that like you, maybe you were involved in like your, your kids' school and you just progressed up to want to do this? Or did you just say, yep, honey, I'm going to run? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say probably more the former. Um, I had I was very involved in in my kids' schools. I was the head of the um, the president of the um, PTA at three of the four schools that they were at um, <laughs> over time, and uh, got really involved in in the sort of town politics when um, during the recession back in. It was. It really hit in 2002, um, money-wise in Massachusetts, and so a lot of school funding got severely cut, and a lot of programs were cut, and so that was before my kids were really in school. But it was still a problem in the system because there were things that never got added back, even though more money was available. And 
Um, then as we're hitting the next recession and things are getting tied again, even more things are getting cut. So as that was starting to happen was when I started getting involved in um, issues in town and sort of contemplated the idea of maybe running in and over there, there are essentially two major boards that are elected. The, um, the select board, which is basically kind of like a board of directors for a corporation. Um, we hire the town manager and the town manager is like the CEO. He runs mm -hmm. the day to day. Um, and, uh, you know, we can fire him if we <laughs> don't like how he's handling things. Um, and then there's also the school committee and the school committee is similar, but in Massachusetts, all things school are very separated from everything else and have very, um, specific statutory framework and, um, responsibilities and powers that go to the to the school committee. So other than on budgeting issues, to a great extent, there's not crossover between um, the select board and the school committee, which is kind of too bad. It creates a very adversarial kind of scenario. Um, but it was at least initially set up for good reasons, because what was happening is the schools were not getting the funding from a huge number of towns. And so back in the 70s when they did the reform, this required and created power in a separate body uh, within the towns to do it. So it's a, it was a statewide reform. So like it or not, we have it. <laughs> um, and, um, and so sort of through that process, I've been thinking about it a little bit. Um, I'd actually pulled nomination papers to run for school committee about two years before I ran for select board ended up not filing those because of essentially one of the senior people at my office at the time had a reoccurrence of cancer. I ended up getting um, a couple of his cases, one of which was an appellate brief that was due basically during the campaign. Um, and so it just wasn't a good time. So ended up not running then. And then um, sort of had it in the back of my head. And then somebody in town was like, knew I wasn't happy with a couple of issues over how they were being handled by the select board. And no one was running against um, uh, the one seat that was open. And she's like, you need to run. <laughs> and sort of conspired with a couple other people to get me to run. And I literally filed my papers with the signatures of, in the afternoon of the last day. <laughs> um, <laughs> and ran a very short campaign and ended up beating the incumbent. So uh, it was kind of uh, crazy and then got reelected during COVID, which was crazy yeah. for different reasons. <laughs> so, um, and what's, what's the term, two years? Three years. Three years, okay. So, so I'm one year into my second three-year term. Okay. Um, and I mean, and are you, can you run again? I can. There are no term limits. <laughs> um, we have one person on the board who's been on for, I think, 14 years now. Oh, wow. So um, definitely not unheard of. But um, other than that, the other, there are five of us on the board. Um, the other three on the board have all been newly elected since I started. So we've, we had um, a couple of long serving people that um, stepped down. So uh, been uh, interesting uh, changes in town. Well, but that's good. You like that happened in my, my township too. And we had a lot of people who had been on, um, I forget, I think it's called the commission or something. They'd been on it for years and then it, it changes over. And I think you can't, you do need that at some point. Like it can't yeah. just always be the same 
group of individuals, you know, you need some fresh eyes on, on things at some point. I agree. Nothing happens. It's just the status quo. So, but good for you. I'm proud of of you, Laura. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you have, you have two daughters who are, I believe both your daughters, well, one is going into, she took a gap year this year and is going into a freshman year of college. And I think, did your other daughter start college? Yeah, she's finishing up her, well, we'll be finishing her junior year this year. Um, So, so looking at where, where your daughters are and seeing this firsthand, you know, do you have any thoughts about, um, like how this like generation is where they're going to struggle with coming from one, we've had this COVID issue and just, you know, how learning has changed. Everything has changed. Like, what do you think is going to be their, you know, their challenges when they try to enter the workforce, um, and go on with their professional careers? Oh, scary question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, my older daughter is um, majoring in biology and is also doing uh, whatever they call their equivalent of a minor in public health and is planning on going on um, uh, in public health. So she has been, you know, public health has been obviously a huge issue for the last uh, year plus. Um, So She's actually going to be interning at the uh, local Department of Health in Andover over the summer. Um, And I think that she has been able to sort of be exposed to different things because of the pandemic that um, have been more of a focus uh, in every possible way uh, than would have before. Um, I'm a little worried because public health has been a very popular uh, master's program before COVID. And you know, me wanting to make sure she has a job, having the, the most popular master's program isn't necessarily the best way to go, but uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, um, she was uh, supposed to be going to Belgium, actually was supposed to be there now doing um, some of her, uh, doing like a semester abroad and also doing um, essentially field work for the public health minor which obviously did not happen. Um, Mm. So I've been trying to figure out sort of ideas for her to be able to do something like that now, um, which, you know, doing field work online is just not the same. Um, So, so I think, I don't, I think it's going to be interesting to see. I do think that um, hopefully public health is going to be more of a focus in, uh, and is gonna be more supported both by public opinion and by public funds, because we've now seen all of us firsthand the impact of uh, a pandemic on every part of our society. Um, and uh, my younger daughter wants to, uh, is planning to major in chemistry and is threatening law school. <laughs> um, and like my parents, I'm like, no, 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 you don't want to go to law school. <laughs> so so we'll, we'll see about that. Um, way too well, early to tell. <laughs> you know, I, I had intended to go to med school, like my whole college, oh, wow. like time. I, I mean, did the MCAT, see, I did the whole, like the whole thing. Um, and I actually ended up deciding not to go to med school, but I went to like a PhD program for like neuroscience and pharmacology right after college oh, Wow! and hated it. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> hated it. And then I, I left. So law school was never even on like 
on my like I didn't even think about it I was a science kid so having said that like if I think having a chemistry background actually could serve her very well if she wants to go to law school because then she has you know the patent attorney route available right. yeah um whereas I technically could have sat for the patent exam but I didn't have enough experience to make it make me employable <laughs> like because I was I didn't have that full like I, I was a math and psychology major so I, I didn't have enough science so it's not a terrible idea no no I I just I mean and some of it is it's I, you know, I also think about like medical device litigation. That always seems yeah. to be a, a very significant area. Um, and I'm sure there is non-litigation related things that um, are involved with all of that, like um, getting FDA approval um, and any amount of things that I know nothing about. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I think it, it definitely could be a good fit. And uh, um I'm trying to keep my nose out of it. It's her choice <laughs> and well, it's years away. So <laughs> I, mean, I, I kind of, and I mean, I, I have younger kids, but I think one of the challenges that a lot of kids like coming out of school now will have is that there's such a need to be very specialized, but also like very interesting, you know, and, um, and like, I think it's, I just think it's so probably so difficult just to get a job unless you have something that really stands out. So I don't know. I think it's like, it's a, I think it's going to be a big challenge. My very yeah. uninformed opinion. <laughs> well, I, I found like doing, going through the, the uh, college application process um, and just sort of being around other kids that were my kids age during it, there seems to be this very strong, I don't know if it's which side it comes from, whether it's the kids, parents, colleges to have like figured out exactly what they want to do before they apply to college yeah. which was totally not me um I I was the one that like declared my major within like weeks of the deadline you know um and uh and so I don't know I don't know if it's good or bad I I think that there's more focus on it but I also wonder whether there are going to be more kids who you know like you ended up in a program that they just hated and um, hopefully they can step away from it like you did rather than be doing something that they hate for the rest yeah. of their life. Um, but I don't know. I think making those decisions when you're 17, 18 years old is tough. And um, you don't know what you want to do. I mean, <laughs> like, and you may change a lot in the next, you know, five years or 10 years. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I see it with my, my niece is going to college in the fall and she wants to go in, I think for, uh, forensics. So I was like, well, now like I mean like you you could always change I, I was going to be a, a doctor and look at me now <laughs> so um yeah and I felt like through the whole process with both my daughters it's like find a school that you're comfortable with that if you decide you don't want to do you know your planned major and you instead want to do you know math and psychology are you still going to want to be there do they have a broad-based program in many things so that you know you can choose it and uh so we'll we'll see uh, uh my yeah. older daughter's still doing biology and public health which she decided she was interested in like sophomore year in high school so um yeah um okay so we're on our last two and i promise these aren't as these aren't as doozies. 
don't know. You're going to ask me some question about like, public, you know, um, culture or something. And I'm going to be like, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> no. All right. Th these two are, are, are more fun. Okay. So what is something that you like or you do that other people might think is weird? Oh. Um. I do that people think it's weird. Well, I or don't just, know about weird. Or just your husband. Well, I'm a big skier. Um, I uh, uh, downhill ski. Um, had cross, tried cross country skiing once when I was like, I don't know, 15 and like fell over on a flat surface. It was like done. <laughs> um, uh, um, so I probably ski. 10 to 15 days a year. Um, and uh, I also like to uh, cook a lot. Um, we uh, get a, a farm share. So I, a box of vegetables from a farm once a week, um, not in the winter. So we'll be starting again here in a month or so and uh, enjoy uh, cooking all that. Um, and so I have a question about that. So I almost did that once. And do you ever get in, in your box, like something that you're like, is it like part of a challenge? Like you get something like, I don't know what <laughs> I'm going to do with, you know, <laughs> this. <laughs> well, we've done that. We've done this for years and some, we've done it through a couple of different farms and some do a better job than others. Um, and I think one thing to look for when you're signing up is sort of what is a, uh, a normal box for them. And if you can't identify several things in there, or if it seems like, like kale is not a big uh, item that our family likes. So, so uh, and we get some kale, <laughs> uh, but um, if, if I were looking at it and their standard box, when they give you four examples and they all have kale, I might be looking somewhere else. <laughs> um, but uh, the one that we do now, and I think the previous one did this also, uh, sends along, they send you an email usually the day before saying, this is what's coming in your box. And then they um, uh, attach a recipe that uses a couple of those, um, or they'll give you information, especially if it's a weird ingredient um, on, you know, how to cook it. Uh, I still, uh, I've gotten, I don't know how many recipes about how to use like carrot greens. I'm never using carrot greens. Um, <laughs> um, they look nice, but I'm not eating them. Um, so, you know, some of it is you just kind of have to do what you do. Um, and most of the, well, the, the shares I've all been involved with pre-COVID had what was called a swap box. So that if there was something you didn't want in your box, then you could go to the swap box and see if there was something in there that you could swap it out for. Um, and uh, I found, I always find it interesting. The things that, that like are the things I'm dying for that are like four of them in the box. And I'm like, what? No one likes this. <laughs> well, I'm with you. I would, I I'm shocked about your kale. I'd be all, I, I could eat kale every day. I love kale. Yeah. We, we are not big kale fans. <laughs> um, apparently, uh, a couple of times, a couple of boxes we'll get have, um, fresh basil in it, which we love. And I like make a big amount of pesto and freeze it every year. And so like, Every time they did they did basil, there'd be like five bunches in the box, and I'd be like, "Can I take five bunches?" <laughs> um, um, on the other hand, like I don't know, um, I never saw tomatoes in there. Um, everybody likes tomatoes, um, so uh, fennel's another one that's not high on my list, but the rest of my family likes. So 
we figured that one out. <laughs> um, well, I, I, I love that. I, I really thought about doing one actually during COVID because at the time, you know, we were when the grocery shopping was out of control yeah. and I was going to do one, but I was concerned that I, I'm really the only vegetable lover in this house. So I was concerned that I would just get a box and I mean, it would be just for me. <laughs> like, like they're good for onions and peppers, the rest of my family, but they're not going to eat a broccoli or anything else. Brussels sprouts. Oh, they hate when I make Brussels sprouts. I'm not a big fan of Brussels sprouts. I'm with them. <laughs> I don't um, think we've ever gotten Brussels sprouts in a share. Um, so I'm going to make some for lunch. Uh, <laughs> so I've had those what deep fried Brussels sprouts that they have at restaurants. Those are good. But you know, if you deep fry anything, it's probably pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it usually does the trick. So la last question, I promise this is not a hard one. Um, or maybe it is, I don't know. Um, <laughs> If, what is one movie that you could watch over and over again, regardless of if it, what, regardless of what you're doing? Um, well, one of my favorites, and I haven't watched it in a long time, is uh, it's old now. Is the American President? Um, oh, I just watched that recently. I, I, that I need to watch it again. I think I have it on like VHS tape, so I'll have to find out where I can or I can stream it. But. Um, and you know, it was the uh, the inspiration for West Wing, which was also one of my all time favorites. Um, I was a political science major in college, so um, you know, there's part of that. Um, I don't know. I like the actors. Um, always, always just loved that movie. So um, there is there's something to be said about that, like the the love like the presidential love story, like the <laughs> I just love that movie. <laughs> so. So that would probably be high on my list. I also like, um, and I haven't seen it for a while though, I forced my kids to watch it, the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick. Oh I always go God. back to like the, the movies when I was a kid. So it's basically uh, about a, they, uh, Matthew Broderick who's a teenager at the time. So that gives you <laughs> an idea of how old it is. Um, basically hacks into a computer and starts playing a game with uh, the computer. And um, it turns out he's basically hacked into a simulation for a nuclear war. And, um, so it's all about essentially what happens and how um, the national defense gets like triggered by it. And um, uh, it was sort of in the same time period as like Ferris Bueller's, which is yeah, another yeah. one of my favorites. So yeah. this is a little more dark than that. <laughs> um, but uh uh, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off is always a great one too. Yeah. Um, well, I'm gonna have to watch that one. I, I haven't heard that one. So not Ferris Bueller. I that one. Yeah. I so war, war games. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably. I'm sure it was from the 80s. That's okay. <laughs> so. um, well, Laura, it was such a pleasure having you on. Uh, why don't you just let everyone know where they could they, they can find you um, if they should have any coverage questions or need some help, um, you know, they should feel free to contact you. Well, um, you can look for me on LinkedIn um, at, I think it's Laura M. Gregory CPCU. Um, although if you do Laura Gregory and CPCU, I'm sure that you'll find me. Um, and by the way, the CPCU is an insurance designation, chartered property and casualty underwriter, since people don't know what that is. Um, and uh, you can also uh, reach me by email at uh, lgregory at Sloan, S-L-O-A-N-E, everyone drops the E, walsh.com. So sloanwalsh.com. Um, and thank you, this has been fun.
Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on.